is three chapters. It is Genesis 12, 13, and 14. We will read them at different stages in the sermon. So you will not be tempted not to listen long. So we're going to start out with Genesis 12, verses 1 through 9. And let us stand for the reading of the Word of God. Genesis 12, 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah his wife, and Lot his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. And Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem and the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. You may be seated. One of the things that makes the Bible so readable and so fascinating is that God teaches us deep and profound truths about providence and life and his relation to men and men's relationship to him in stories that he actually plucked right out of the history of his people. These aren't fairy tales. See, these aren't myths. They're stories taken right from the history of God's people through the ages. So when you read these stories and you tell them to your children, make sure you always make the point that these stories were intended to make. We are in a section of the Bible that is one of the most important sections that teaches us some of the most practical and important truths we can find anywhere in the Scripture. Its technical title is The Record of the Generations of Terah. Terah, you remember, was Abraham's daddy. Terah was a moon worshiper. And his greatest contribution to the human race, he and his wives, was the birth of Abraham. So Abraham plays a very important role in these chapters 12 through 25. Uh, it's, they're divided up into three sections. After an introduction in chapter 11, they're divided up into three sections. 
God made Abraham some promises, a promise of a land to him and his descendants. And then he tests Abraham with reference to that promise in chapters 12, 13, and 14. And then God gave him a promise about a seed, a great seed that would bless everybody in the world. And then God bless, uh, tests him whether or not he believes those things in chapter 15, 16, and 17 uh, through 21, through chapter 21. Then in chapter 21 through chapter 25, he tests him with reference to the third promise. And the third promise so that God would give a glorious and rich future to his faithful people in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think you're going to find out something you might not have expected. And that is that as we read about these three, these tests that God gives Abraham, you're going to find yourself tested by God. A test does not have as its purpose to bring you low or to humble you. A test from God has as its purpose to strengthen your heart and to strengthen your faith. And sometimes a test can hurt. Sometimes they're severe. One we'll talk about on future days is when God told Abraham, I'm going to give you in your old age a son who's going to be the granddaddy of Jesus. Now I want you to take him up on Mount Moriah and I want you to kill him. Pretty severe test. So you're going to find yourself tested. Open your heart to, to, to be willing to have that done. Open your heart to be willing to have God test you during this time so as to strengthen your faith. Now, the passage of Scripture we just read, first nine verses of chapter 12, we preached about uh, last Sunday, Sunday before, where we deal with the specific promises that God made Abraham in Christ and what they meant, and that God has made those promises to you this land promise that God made Abraham is not just the land of Palestine. That's a down payment. This land promise is the entire earth promised to the people of God, promised to Christians. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Romans 4.13, Abraham was heir of the world. So this land promise is not just about Palestine. This land promise is about uh, heavens and earth on both sides of the grave about life on this earth as we know it now as well as the new heavens and new earth after the Lord Jesus Christ comes. God gave every square inch of this planet to his people to live on that planet and build homes and businesses and schools and churches and cultures and civilizations to his glory. We saw that the seed promise that God would give Abraham a seed that would eventually be so numerous that it would outnumber the stars on, in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And that seed promise, uh, as reference, first of all, to Jesus, Jesus is the seed of Abraham par excellence, and then in him through faith, everybody who believes in him is counted among God's seed. Uh, so that the people of God, the Christians who trust in Christ, regardless of ethnic origin, will continue to grow and spread until they fill the whole earth. And then there's the promise of a glorious and rich future 
where all the families of the world would be blessed through the seed of Abraham. And God would curse all those that cursed us and bless all those that bless us. Not talking about ethnic Jews. He's talking about all those who belong to Christ by faith regardless of ethnic origin. That we, the future, belongs to us and to our descendants and not uh, to evil men and women. So those are the promises. Now let's look at the tests. God gave Abraham three tests concerning the land promise. To teach Abraham, first of all, that God's in control of everything. That God's in charge. You can depend upon God for everything. He's faithful to everything he said. He's teaching Abraham that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. He's just as definite on that as Paul was in the book of Galatians or the book of Romans. And God is teaching Abraham that we are to look more to the giver than we are to his gifts. We're to praise the Lord for all the gifts he gives us. But the real focus of the heart the real focus of the love of true believers is the giver himself. Wonderful promises. We love the promises. We're to love the promiser more than his promises. And so that's the great, those are the great lessons that God wants Abraham to learn and he wants you to learn. Now, the first test God gave him starts in verse 10. And Abraham failed it. He not only failed it, he failed it miserably. He not only failed it miserably, he failed it embarrassingly. So let's look at verse 10 through verse 20 of chapter 12. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. And it came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarah, his wife, See now I know that you are a beautiful woman. She's about 75. I know that you're a beautiful woman. And it will come about when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife. And they will kill me. But they'll let you live. Please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. And it came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful and Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. You know, up to that point, he's talking about this woman. He's mentioned this woman. Now you're going to see he's emphasizing this is not Abram's sister. 
God sent plagues on Egypt because this woman is Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and get out of here. Or go, that was just southern. <laughs> and Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Fascinating story, isn't it? Big famine came upon Canaan, the promised land, Abram's land. God gave it to him by promise. And God was testing him. Abraham, are you going to trust me when it's hard to trust me to make sure that you get this land that I gave to you, no matter what happens? Sure, sure. Okay, I'm going to send a terrible famine. So what's the first thing Abraham did? Failed to trust God. Well, I better head somewhere where there's more food. Somewhere where I can be taken care of. I don't want to starve to death in this promised land of milk and honey. So of all places to go, he goes to Egypt. And there's just one, and, and he failed the test. And he failed it embarrassingly. Because you see, there was one big problem. And that was beautiful Sarah. And the Egyptians were not Christians. Nor were the Egyptians moral. And so Abram says to his wife Sarah, Listen, I've been thinking about this thing. When we get to Egypt, you tell everybody that you're my sister. Because you are so beautiful, and the Egyptians are so appreciative. appreciative of beautiful women that if they think I'm your husband they're going to kill me and take you to Pharaoh so you can have so he can have you as his wife Abram the man of faith the model for faith in the New Testament proved to be at this one point not only a coward but a terrible coward who in order to sacrifice his own skin risked the physical well-being and purity of his wife. If they think you're my sister They'll take you to Pharaoh, and he'll have you for one of his wives. See what happens when, well, and you know, we don't say, well, was Abram a Christian? Of course he was a Christian. We do stupid things like that, too. There are times in which we prove ourselves to be cowards. Whenever unbelief comes into your life, it always produces cowardice and treachery and deceit. And in this lapse of faith, and that's what it was, Abraham was still a believer. Remember what the man said to Jesus, uh, Lord, I believe, 
help me in my unbelief. Abraham could have said the same thing, and we can say that same thing over and over again. Understand that in the believer's life, his faith is not perfect. And that he's going to pray over and over and over in his life. Lord, I do believe. I do believe in you. But help me when I don't. Help me when my faith is weak. You give me strength. So at this time, Abram, faith was weak and he became a coward. Now this story gets more complicated. It says in verse 5 of 15, as, as Abram expected when the Pharaoh's officials saw Sarah, they immediately told Pharaoh about this beautiful woman whom he immediately took into his house. It doesn't say he did anything immoral. Therefore, he treated Abram well because his sister was so beautiful. And he gave him a fortune in livestock. And then the Lord God Almighty intervened to rescue Sarah and Abraham and the land. God himself stepped into the picture and struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues and diseases because of Sarah. Abram's wife. That was a great act of grace on God's part, rescuing Abram's skin and his wife. It was also a great act of judgment on this pagan Pharaoh. You know, one thing you learn in the Bible that God can do one thing and it can both be gracious for his people and judgmental for his enemies at one and the same time, the very same act. That's what the flood was. Noah's flood rescued Noah and his family from the evil culture of that day. At the same time, destroyed the evil culture and judged it. And that's what's happening here. God's judging Pharaoh and at the same time rescuing Sarah and rescuing Abram. And so Pharaoh realizes what's going on in verse 18. And he says, what in the world have you done to me? You've caused your God to pile up plague after plague in my life. Why didn't you tell me she was her, your wife? And in verse 19, why did you say to me, she's your sister? So I would take her for your wife, my wife, and you wouldn't be killed. So here. You take her away. I don't want to be a part of this thing. I don't want to be pl under plagues again by your God. So take your wife and get out of here. And so Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. You see what unbelief did to this great man? He was supposed to be his wife's protector. That's what a husband is supposed to be. He's supposed to be his wife's protector. And here he's asking his wife to protect him on the basis of a lie. 
So Abraham, Abram, his name hadn't been changed yet. Abram failed that first test. He failed to believe that God's going to provide for him in the land that God promised to give him even if there is a great famine and drought. That God can still provide for him. You notice another thing about this fascinating story. At this point, the behavior of a pagan is better than the behavior of a believer. Abraham's quite a believer. Pharaoh was not. Pharaoh did the right thing when Abram fell. I'm sure that humbled Abram all the more, don't you? God knows how to humble his people. God knows how to get his people to trust in him no matter what. They know how, he knows how to keep them humble, make them humble, and keep them humble. And I'm sure at that point in time, Abraham was convicted of his sin. So understand out here in this life, even though you have a, a morally supreme character by virtue of having been born again, you don't have a perfect character. And you could do things in this life that are worse than what pagans would do. And when those times come, you should fall on your face before God and confess your sins and repent of them and seek God's face. Well, Abraham learned a lesson from that test. So there's two more tests to come, and he uh, passed both of those. So let's go back to chapter 13, and let's read this story. Remember, Lot was Abram's nephew. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev. Now the Negev is the flat, flattish coastal southlands of Palestine. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, good farming land. He and his wife and all that belonged to him and lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. Here's God richly blessing this man that just proved to be a coward. These were all gifts of grace. None of these were gifts that Abraham deserved. The livestock, the silver, the gold. They just went with the land. God said, I'm going to teach you that I'm going to be faithful to you even when you're not faithful to me. And living in the land just not mean literally living in the land. It means enjoying all the benefits and resources and blessings and wealth from the land. So Abraham was not some poor guy. Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold because of the goodness of God. And he went on his journeys from the Negev, 
as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been in the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord again. Now, why did he pass the second test? He built the altar. And he called on the name of God. And he immediately left worshiping God at that altar to facing the test that he had to face. So that tells you something about worship. That tells you something about how protective the worship of God is. When we go out to our various responsibilities and duties and callings cold and there's no worship on our part, either publicly or familiar or uh, personal, uh, we can't expect to, win, to pass very many tests. The worship of God is a shield. The worship of God is a fortress. God loves to be worshipped by his people. And worshipping him as an individual, as a family, and as a congregation, has a protecting influence upon us as we live in this culture. So in verse 4, we read that right before the second test, he went back to the place where he worshipped God before. By an altar. What was the purpose of an altar? Abram knew, he knew all the way back to Adam. Abraham knew that you cannot worship God and be accepted by him except on the basis of atonement. Except on the basis of a sacrifice of Jesus Christ, of which an animal sacrifice is a symbol. So he's back with the Lord where he should be. He's trying to stay close to God now because he realizes that if he gets too far away from God, he's worthless. And the land could not sustain them. Oh, verse 5. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds, uh, herds and tents. God blessed the whole family. God blessed Abraham, made him filthy rich. God blessed Lot, made him filthy rich, great farmer, rancher, wealth, power. They both have sheep, goats, and there's not enough room for both of them. That's the test. What are you going to do now, Abraham? If I let all of your animals and all of Lot's animals stay in the same place, there will not be enough for your herds and flocks to survive. What are you going to do? Similar to the, to, the, to the famine, if you stay, here's the way Abraham thought, if I stay in this land of Canaan God promised me, I'll not be able to survive during this famine. He'll not be faithful enough to keep me alive. Now he's facing a similar situation. 
Lot has so many flocks, Abraham so many flocks. If we both stay in the same place, we're not going to survive. God can't keep us alive. That's something too big for God to do. Six, and the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling in the land, and they had herds and flocks as well. I guess, Abraham, you're just going to have to leave again. Let's see what you do. Do you have faith that I can take care of you? Then Abram said to Lot, Please, let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen. For we're brothers, we're covenant brothers, we're in the same covenant with God. Is not the whole land before you, Lot? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I'll go to the right, and if to the right, then I'll go to the left. In other words, he's acting in wisdom now. He said, Lot, our herdsmen are not getting along. We're not going to have a life honorable to God. So let's split up. If you want to go that way, I'll go that way. If you want to go that way, I'll go that way. I don't want us to have any more feuding and fighting. I want us to trust God to take care of both of us. So, it says in verse 9, Abraham's talking in all this time, and he says, Is not the whole land before you, Lot? Please separate from me. Whichever way you choose, I'll go the other way. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go into Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. So Lot, here's the greedy person. Abraham says, take whatever land you want. I'll go somewhere else. You can even have the best land, the most fertile land, and I'll take something that's less fertile. But I want us to get along. I want us both to trust God to take care of us. So Lot, who did not have, he was a believer, but he didn't have the character Abraham had, decided that he would uh, pick the valley of the Jordan near the Dead Sea. Where Sodom and Gomorrah were. 
He didn't mention that accidentally. Lot knew where Sodom and Gomorrah were. Lot chose Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 11, so Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moves his tents as far as Sodom. Now, Abraham was willing to let Lot have the best land, the only problem with that best land. It was under the influence of the two most wicked cities in all that whole area, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you notice he uses the word separate. He doesn't use that accidentally. We're going to separate from each other. We're going to live separately. Because you see, one thing that the people of God had a hard problem learning back before the flood was that separation is essential to the Christian life. That you must separate yourself from anybody or anything that would make seduce you, that would know your weaknesses and to make you look like somebody less than a covenant child. The Christian life is impossible to live unless you live a separated Christian life. Abraham knew that. We've got to be separate, Lot. But Lot didn't realize, I also have to be separate from Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you live a separate life, separated life? The Bible says, come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing. Uh, the Bible says that bad company corrupts good morals. No ifs, ands, and buts. Are you living a separated life from this culture? Or are your values the same values that this evil American culture has? Do you fill your minds with the same songs and the same music <coughs> that this evil culture fills its mind with? Do you dress the same way this evil culture dresses? Or are, you cult or are you careful to be modest and not let perverts set the course of fashion in your life? Do you stand out? Are you willing to give up some of the things you could have had like Abraham did in order to live a separated life? Because you and I are so easily tempted it's so easy for us to yield to temptation. That's why we should be praying the Lord's Prayer every day. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil because we are so easily tempted. Uh, and you parents, grandparents, make sure that your children 
are not dressing the way the world dresses. Make sure they don't live the way the world lives. Make sure their, their priorities are not the priorities of the world. Who are your best friends? Are your best friends from Canaan or Sodom and Gomorrah? Who, the, who are the people that you run with? Those that are running away from Almighty God as fast as they can? Or those that are running toward Him as fast as they can? Do you look like a Christian? Is what I'm basically asking you. When you go out in the world, when you go to a party, do you look like a Christian? You talk like a Christian. If the party, uh, they're going to do things at the party that you know are questionable, do you say to yourself and your friend, I can't go to the party? That's not for me. These people are not my people. And besides, it is a fact. Bad company corrupts good morals. Now, we all know that bad company corrupts bad morals. That's not what it says. It says bad company corrupts good morals. You got good morals, then if you run with bad people, your morals are going to be corrupt. Simple as that. Abraham learned that. Lot didn't learn it. Abraham learned that faithful people have to live lives uncontaminated by the evil culture in which they lived. So Lot made a choice. Made him a lot richer. But because he did not learn to live in terms of the promise of God and separate himself to God in terms of that promise, he lost his whole family. We'll see. His wife turned into a pillar of salt. And I may have seen that pillar of salt. It may still be there. So, Abram made the right choice. Lot did not. Verse 12, Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah were two great metropolitan areas that were known for their homosexuality. Now, verse 13, Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, After Lot had separated from him, Now, Abram, lift up your eyes 
and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land which you see. I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. What do all those things mean? Abram, you passed the test. You learned what a separated life would be. So I tell you what, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to cause this land to be inherited by your descendants that are going to be no more numerous than the stars, the sky, and the sand of the seashore. And your descendants are going to live on this land forever. They're going to fill up this land. They're going to build a civilization on this land. To my glory and my honor. I'm mean, not talking about the Jews. Ethnically. Remember the, the seed of Abraham is Christ. And those who belong to him by faith. And so God is blessing Abraham for being faithful. And, and now he's being detailed. In what Abraham can expect. The land is yours Abraham. The land is yours. And it's going to belong to Christians forever. Pass the test. Flying colors. One more test to go. And this is quite a test. Chapter 14. Remember here, a a Abram's always building altars. Chapter 14. And this, this is a, a real story that's not only found in the Bible, but it's found in some stone archaeological uh, digs. And it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar. Where have you heard of Shinar before? It's where the Tower of Babel was built. And it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, and Chedorlaomer. That's the big man. That is the big man. Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim. That they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Beersha, king of Gomorrah. Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And these came as allies to the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea, that is the Dead Sea. Twelve years they had served Jerusalemer. He was quite a tyrant. He was quite a militarist. And he apparently had a great army and a well-equipped army. Because he had brought all these five kings into submission to, to himself. And they were under the servitude of Chiodolomer, 
for 12 whole years. But then the 13th year, they rebelled against him. And in the 14th year, Chedor Laoma and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Raphaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Amim in Sheva, Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to in Mishpat, that is, Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites, who lived in Azazon Tamar, and the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out and they arrayed for battle against them in a valley of Sidim. This is probably the oldest battle we know of in human history. A bunch of kings lined up on each side. All against Cheder Laoma, powerful tyrant, governed the whole valley, bent on conquering the world. So now all these kings have decided to rebel against him. Against Cheder Laoma, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, and Nam Raphael, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elazar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. And they fell into them. But those who survived fled into the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. So the rebellion was a failure. And all these kings who wanted to rebel against Chater Laomer fell into the tar pits or fled to the mountains. He won the day. And they also took Lot. Shedah Leomer took Lot. That's Abram's nephew. Made a mistake living too close to Sodom and Gomorrah. And they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and had and his possessions, and departed, for he was living in Sodom. <laughs> Moses doesn't want you to forget that. He does not want you to forget where Lot was living. And all this came upon him because he got greedy and wanted to have the best grazing land and didn't want to live a separate, separated life and didn't want to live in terms of the promise of God. So now Lot's a capture, captured by Chedorlaomer. Then a fugitive, and notice there's a footnote there. It's not a fugitive, the fugitive. One guy survived the big battle. 
One fugitive is all that got out of that alive from the defeated side. And the fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now, why do you call him Abram the Hebrew? This is all focused on Christ. Remember Shem? You remember when we studied the genealogy of the outcome of Shem's life? And you remember that it says that one of Shem's descendants was Eber, Hebrew, to remind us that the seed of Abraham was the descendant of Shem through the line of Eber, all the Hebrew people, and they're talking about Jesus. This is all about Jesus. Is Abraham going to stand with Jesus or not? Then the fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, and brother of Aner, and these were allies with Abram. And when Abram heard that his relative, his nephew, Lot, had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So you see, Abram was not only a mighty man, a powerful man, a wealthy man. Abraham had in his own household a striking force, a well-trained striking force of over 300 men that he could muster any time he wanted to rescue Reckless Lot. He's acting like the Lord of the land now. He's acting like this land belongs to me, doesn't belong to anybody else but me, and I'm going to trust God for it. So a lot is my people. So you find out that Lot was captured by Chedorlaomer's army. So he leads out, gets his uh, 315 trained men, born in his house, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, Dan is at the farthest north point of the land of Palestine. We're talking about being in the southern part. And he divided his forces. Now, notice how wise he is militarily, strategically. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. Now, I remember Chater Leomer was one of the most powerful men of that day. One time controlled the whole valley. And now he just whipped a bunch of, of nations that had sided against him. So Abraham decides he's going to uh, make his advance at night, divide his forces to confuse them even more, to attack Chaudhar's army from two different directions at night. Now, when you have two armies coming at you at night with torches, uh, you, you tend to panic. You can't really see what's going on. And that was Abraham's reasoning. I'm going to attack them at night. That'll produce a sense of panic in them. And I'll come at them at two different directions. And I will chase them 
as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus, which is Syria. So here we are down here fighting this battle in Abraham's land. He has to whip a bunch of armies in order to rescue his covenant brother. So he whips these armies and chases them as far north as Damascus. That's completely outside the promised land. I'm not going to worry with these guys anymore. This land is mine, and I have a divine right to it by virtue of a divine promise. And it's my duty and my responsibility to defend and protect my property, which is mine by covenant. That's the way he's thinking. Here's a man that's going to stand firm. Nobody's going to chase him off of his land anymore. Verse 15, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And not only did he chase the army completely out of his land, but he bought, brought back all their goods. All the spoils of war he took from them. And also brought back his covenant brother Lot with his possessions. And also the women and the people. My land, I'm not budging. I'm chasing you guys out of here. And then once I chase you all the way to Damascus, I'm going to take all your booty. And I'm getting my nephew back with all of his wealth and all of his family. That's what covenant, covenant brothers do after all, isn't it? Now, the next part we're going to talk about next Sunday, but we'll read it so you can see what happened. Then after his return from the defeat of Chedor Leomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Now Abraham was such a powerful man that even kings like the king of Sodom had to respect his authority. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth. Of all. Who was this guy? Stepped out of nowhere. Didn't have any genealogy. Wasn't a descendant physically of Abraham. We'll find that out next week. Uh, verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Uh, Abraham, king of Sodom, who was vile, said, Abraham, uh, you can take all of the spoils of war. Just give me my people. 
and I'll make you as rich as you want to be, said the king of Sodom. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, not just your property, Sodom, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I'm not taking anything from you, Sodom, a king of Sodom. I don't want the word to get out that the king of Sodom made me rich. I don't want to be identified with your name. I'm trusting God for my wealth and power and future. And I am not going to take one penny from you. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Ainar, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. You can pay these kings that were my allies, but I don't want anything from you, Mr. King of Sodom. Now, if you were the king of Sodom, how would you take that? You going to be like that, Abraham? All right, slam the door in your face. No more alliance. And the king of Sodom slams the door to any future relationship or identity with Abraham. And as soon as he shut that door, the door of the rest of the world opened to Abraham's seed. Abraham knew how he had to live. Here's how a man of faith lives. I'm going to trust in God entirely for my future, and I'm not taking one penny for an apostate, ungodly, civil magistrate. I have learned to be dependent upon God alone. One time I was preaching in a Pentecostal church in Plymouth, Massachusetts, in a Jewish synagogue. It was actually in a blue and white tent, just outside, on the outside of that Jewish synagogue. And I was one of several preachers, and all the rest of them were Pentecostal charismatic preachers. And I was their token, Presbyterian. So I would get to preach one night and then another preacher would preach another night. We'd trade back and forth. And I'll tell you a funny thing and a dramatic thing. I preached one night and the next night I would just sit in the congregation while some other preacher preached. And I knew what he would be saying was as different as day and night from what I would be saying. But I sat there and behaved. And then the preacher said, now we're going to have a healing service. And he said, I want all the preachers to go up here and help me heal people. I didn't want to help him heal anybody. But I didn't say a word. I just scooted behind this rather big woman in front of me. 
hoping he couldn't see me. But he saw me. So he said, Brother Moorcraft, we want you to come up here and help us heal. I said, okay. I can pray and ask God to heal people if it is his will. So I went up the front and I stood way over to the side. All these preachers were lined up in front of the altar. I stood way over here so nobody could see me and hopefully nobody would come to me for healing. <laughs> but lo and behold, this little mentally retarded woman came over to me, picked me out. And she said, Mr. Moorcraft, would you pray that God would heal me of my mental retardation? I said, sure. I would be glad to pray that God would heal you if it is his will. So that's what I prayed. And then there in front of everybody, she threw herself at me, wrapped her arms around my waist, and in a high voice she said, Mr. Moorcraft, you're just a big teddy bear. <laughs> I promise God I would never heal anybody again. <laughs> so, we go into the church for a uh, big worship service. Church is full of people. And I have just preached on our sufficiency as God. We're dependent upon God to be sufficient for us and not depend upon the state to provide for us. And then I sat down behind the pulpit thinking this was the end, but forgetting where I was. And so this little lady comes forward. She's a little lady, I'm guessing in her 30s. Uh, clean clothes, but they weren't very expensive at all. Washed hair, but straight. Had a little baby in her arms and one clinging to her apron. And she walks down the aisle, everybody gets quiet, and she comes up to the pulpit. It's obvious she'd never done that before. And she looks out at the congregation. She said, uh, my husband's a drunk, as you know, and he hadn't had a job in years. And I've been a slave of the state. And I've depended on the state for all my needs. She sets down the baby and she reaches in her apron and pulls out a handful of welfare checks and tears them into dozens of pieces and throws them on the ground. She said, I'm tired of being state-sufficient from here on out. I'm going to be Christ-sufficient. And she walked off. Well, I came back a year later. I wanted to see this woman. I wanted to see if she was still on the road that she had chosen for herself. So I'm walking toward the the tent, and I see this blonde woman walking toward me. She's a little better, better dressed now. She walks toward me, and I recognize that it's her. And she said, Mr. Moorcraft, I want to tell you something. My husband's still a drunk. 
My husband still has not had a job in over a year. I've gotten jobs. I've been able to provide for myself and my children. I am no longer state sufficient. I have learned that Christ's grace is sufficient for me. That's what Abraham learned. God makes you a promise. Believe it. He gives you a promise in the Bible. Believe it. Live in terms of it. Don't doubt it. God will be faithful to it. God's in complete control of every situation. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Take your eyes off the land. Take your eyes off Chater Leomer. And look at the giver. Don't be a slave of the state anymore. Let us pray.